In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Why study the prophet Amos? What does he have to say that we all these, year late, all these years later need to hear? The answers to these questions will be given over the course of our midweek Lenten services to come. And over the Wednesdays, you will have a chance to hear the entirety of the book of Amos. Following the theme of God often choosing the least likely folks to do his work, Amos was a shepherd living in the days of Isaiah and Hosea, some 800 years or so before the birth of Christ. At that time, Israel had been split in two, Ten of the twelve tribes called Israel in the north, and two of the twelve tribes called Judah in the south. Amos was a bit of an outsider in two ways. First, as I mentioned before, he was not in the order of the prophets, but was a shepherd, called from the outside, as it were. Second, Amos was from Judah in the south, but Yahweh called him to preach to Israel in the north. And so it was as an outsider and foreigner that Amos preaches to Israel. Not exactly an easy first call out of the seminary. As if these things weren't difficult enough, Amos was given to preach an almost impossible message, the message of God's coming judgment. Ultimately, in the form of the Assyrians descending from the north, and sweeping away the ten northern tribes entirely. As I said, this was almost an impossible message to preach, and this for two reasons. In the first place, Israel was quite prosperous at that time. To put it in our terms, the economy was great, unemployment was down, people were buying and selling, building their mansions, and preparing for many more good years to come. It looked like God was blessing them in every way possible. How could it be then that God would suddenly bring them to judgment? But this was the message that Amos was given to preach. In the second place, Israel had become spiritually inoculated from virtually any message of God's impending judgment. Their rationale? God is merciful unconditionally, endlessly merciful. If we sin and keep on sinning, why, we have the sacrifices to take care of that. Like to enrich yourself off the poor? No problem. Offer a sacrifice. Like to oppress those who cannot defend themselves against you? No problem. Offer a sacrifice. Like to do what is right in your own eyes? maybe a bit of idolatry, pervert justice to fit your desires, thumb your nose at God's law, falsely charge your brother, divorce your wife, spend your days in drunkenness, tell whatever lies serve you best, plan to spend your wicked days in luxury, no problem. Yahweh is merciful after all, just offer a sacrifice. And so Amos and many of the other prophets with him had virtually no success in preaching that the judgment of God was coming upon the people for their sins. Judgment? No, they would say, we are rich. 
God is pleased with us. Judgment? No, they would say. I offered my sacrifice. God is good with me and with whatever I do. And this is the spiritual dynamic that we would do well to ponder. When God says to us, repent, do we respond in sincerity and truth? Or do we say, repent? Why bother repenting when Jesus has already died for all the sins I could ever commit? Or when God says, repent, do we say, Yes, yes, I feel so badly, God, about all the bad things that I'm doing. Please forgive me while I keep on doing them. Or when God says, repent, do we say, repent? Why bother with that? After all, my repentance sucks, and therefore it doesn't mean anything anyways. Or when God says, repent, do we say, God, it's your job to repent me. What? Am I actually supposed to change my attitude, change my mind, or change my behavior? How legalistic, God. You mean I'm actually supposed to stop hurting myself and the people around me? No, that won't earn me salvation. So just stop bothering me with that little foolish word, repent. Is it possible? that we've tied ourselves up in so many supposedly Lutheran knots that we are no longer able to listen to God when he says, repent. The people that Amos preaches to are people who draw near to God with their lips and say great swelling things about his grace, but their hearts are far from him, so far from him, they can't even comprehend that he would be against them. They are people lost in the delusion of spiritual security. And against them, God roars. That's how Amos puts it. Like a lion, God roars. He roars so mightily against them that the earth shakes in a giant earthquake. And from his, war come, from his roar comes judgment and fire and locusts and drought, famine and disease, and ultimately an army that will annihilate the northern kingdom. All throughout his book, Amos refers to God as a lion. And he begins his book by saying, Yahweh roars from Zion. And all that follows in Amos's book flows from this roar. What immediately follows the roar is the judgment of the ancient nations. That's what you heard read to you just moments ago. Yahweh's judgment on one, Damascus and the nation of Aram, two, Gaza and the nation of Philistia, three, the nation of Tyre, four, the nation of Edom, five, the nation of Ammon, and six, the nation of Moab. At which point, all of Israel is rejoicing at this roar, because like an unimaginable lion, Yahweh is roaring at all their enemies. 
And that's when their surprise comes. Because God doesn't stop with those nations as we did tonight. He goes on. Seven, Judah, and eight, Israel. But that's for next Wednesday. God had reached his breaking point. And we don't often think about God like this. But if we pay attention to the Bible in general and to Amos in specific, we should. God is indeed slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But being slow to anger doesn't mean that he's incapable of anger or ferocity like a lion. Yahweh, who is most certainly gracious and merciful, will not be mocked. His grace is neither acceptance of sin nor permission to sin. His mercy is not given so that his law may be set aside or so that right and wrong might be ignored. No, in fact, that's precisely when his anger is kindled. That's when his grace and mercy are withdrawn, when they are abused, when they are put in service of evil, when scoffers take his grace and mercy upon their lips in order to do and teach the exact opposite of what Yahweh would have human beings do. His anger is kindled, it builds and it builds, and finally it breaks and like a lion, God roars against his creation, justly and rightly, because he is just and he is right. He is gracious and he is merciful, but not in service to evil. As you will see in the weeks to come, the roar of Yahweh shakes everything, destroys everything knocks everything down. And boy, can we resonate with that, with the climate, the economy, disease, our nation, and our own personal lives, all shaking and coming to nothing in the roar. And yet the roar does not stop there. The roar does not simply stop when all have been justly judged and justly destroyed. The roar goes on to lift what has fallen, to restore what has been broken, to make from the rubble of sin and death a new creation, cleansed and pure, a new world filled with nations who are called by God's own name, as Amos will later say. And since we know, at least in part, where this is leading, we can see how the roar of Yahweh has even now led to his name being written upon the nations, upon the foreheads and hearts of all Christians, written there with the water of holy baptism. We see how already we have been spiritually resurrected we who are dead in our trespasses and sins have been made alive with Christ Jesus, even now. And on the last day, 
the roar will restore our bodies and all things. Even now, we have been raised by his roar to walk in newness of life. And this old world that has been and will continue to be shaken will, by the very same roar of Yahweh, be utterly transformed and made new. Mountains dripping with wine, Amos will later say, and gardens abundant in fruit. Why does God have mercy? Why does the roar of Yahweh not only destroy, but then restore? The answer to that is to be found in the mystery of the cross. Yahweh, in human form, crucified and murdered by humans, by his own creation, so that through our greatest evil, he would work our greatest good, so that the creation that put him to death might by him be utterly restored that from his very wounds will flow the wine that drips from the mountains, that his own body hung from the tree will become the abundant fruit that gives us life once more and life eternal. The mystery of the cross is the key for just as Amos mentions a great earthquake and a great roar, so Jesus' last words from the cross, if you recall, weren't a gasping whimper, but a roar. And upon bowing his head in death, a great earthquake ensued. The transformation from the roar that destroys to the roar that restores was there at the cross of Jesus. In C.S. Lewis' book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is it any wonder that he depicts Jesus as a lion named Aslan? Is, is he mean? Asked Lucy. Is he a man? Aslan a man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly. Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, is he quite safe? I shall rather feel nervous at meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please rise for the canticle on page 231. 